Well, did anybody see that or did y'all have your eyes closed when you're praying? I moved some furniture. If I was really important, I'd have someone here moving the furniture for me. That's when you know you arrive at a whole nother level. Alex Faust didn't think I could do it without breathing heavy at my age. This thing's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy. Hey, glad you're here. We're going to jump right into it. We're in this series, as a lot of you know, called Disciple. Uh, This series, we're really, it's focusing on making disciples and what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ. We looked at week one just about just the reality that if you Google how many people self-identify as Christians in America, it's some 245 or 248 million. And in a nation of only 328 million, that just doesn't seem right. And that doesn't seem right because it ain't right. And so look, Jesus did not say, it's a careful distinction, but Jesus never said, go and make Christians. He said, go and make disciples. What's the difference? That's what we're looking at. We're looking at what it means to really be a follower of Christ. We said week two that disciple understands the cost in Luke 14, that a disciple experiences change, Matthew 13. And then last week, as will be today, we dipped into Revelation. That's your cue if you brought a Bible or if you're at home with a Bible ready. Turn to Revelation chapter two. Last week, we were in Revelation three. We're backing up a bit as we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. There's metaphor in here, as you'll see, about the seven lampstands, a lot of good stuff. We won't explain it all. We want to get to the heart of it and what it means, but we're looking at this whole idea of what does it mean to be a disciple, to be a genuine follower of Christ. One way to more poetically say this is we're looking at letters to lost disciples. And last week we looked at the church in Laodicea and we said that a disciple is not lukewarm. A disciple is either hot or cold. That's the preference there. And Jesus uh, gives a strong words that I'll spew you out. I'll spit you out. We likened it to coffee. You don't want coffee that's been sitting on the counter all day at room temperature. You're going to reject that unless you're really weird. You want coffee hot. You want coffee cold. And that's the heart of our savior. And so we looked at that. And today we're going to look at this idea uh, not in Laodicea. We're going to look at the first letter of the, I would call Ephesus the first mega church. It's the first big church there. And they weren't lost in, they weren't lost in lukewarmness like Laodicea. They were lost in legalism. Now, somebody asked me, they said, hey, you're going to preach all these letters. I'm probably not in this disciple series, but we're going to look at this few of them. But they asked me a follow-up question, which one are we? Which one is Fondren Church? And I paused and my answer, I uh, told this at 930, I think we're all seven at times. Like we can lose our way. We can get lost in lukewarmness. We can get lost in legalism. We can get lost in falling asleep. We can get lost in deadness. I was with our staff last week in the gym. We prayed for our year in light of the year we've had. And we just, we talked about our history and we look back at the early days and when it was a movement and when we were humble and hungry. And if we're not careful, we'll move toward being more of an institution. And we got to make sure that we don't become dead, that the God and the power of his spirit will keep us awake. And so letters to lost disciples. That's what we're looking at today. We're going to be in in Revelation chapter 2. And before we put the passage up, not just yet, a little bit of background. This is written to Ephesus, as I said, and Ephesus was a dominant city uh, in the province. It wasn't the capital. Uh, Pergamum was the capital, but it was Pergamum. So Ephesus had a port. It had a harbor. It was really important place of trade. It was a type A city. You can even see this reflected a bit in the letter that I'll point out in a second. It was just a type A city. You didn't go at the time to Ephesus necessarily to vacation and take it easy. It wasn't a Vegas type 
type city. It was uh, an industrial city. It was an important city. It was a city where type A people loved. They thrived. Any type A people in the house? Uh, I love type A people. You just raise your hand if you're a type A a person. God has put me in your life to help you relax, you type A people. But type A, man, you you close a door on type A, they're going to they're gonna build another door or they're going to like carve a little hole in that door and figure out how to, you know, uh, with a weight loss program and get through the little hole that they carved. They're going to show you. They're not going to take your no. They're determined and disciplined and goal-oriented. They're type A. And type A people work hard. Again, I'm saying all that because you're going to see this in the letter. So question, does the church influence the culture or does the culture influence the church? Then, now, us, you, me, where are, I mean, what's the answer to that? It's kind of tricky, isn't it? Do, are, we, are we here to influence the culture or are we going to let the culture influence us? And you can see that Ephesus, well, let's read it and then I'll point some stuff out. Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7, that's where we'll be. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your what, type A? I know your works, type A, your toil and your patient endurance. You stick after it. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Hey, they have, this church had good doctrine. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. These people love the truth. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. Continue. But I have this against you. Okay, he's commended them. Enduring patiently, bearing up, not growing weary, all good things. But hey, I got something against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first back up this is these aren't small words you have abandoned the love you had at first you hear me they they had the right doctrine you know, let me be honest a lot of churches veer off and get lost because they start believing lies like they have teachers up here tickling their ears. They preach a false gospel and it goes off. It goes off the tracks. The, the, it's wrong theology. Theology is so important. We want to have rigorous teaching. We want to have robust theology here. But look, here's a church that had good theology, but they got lost. And you see why? Because they, they forgot their first love. Today, if you want a sermon title, a great disciple remembers his first love. So remember, therefore, he's going to give you... A little bit of the solution. Remember from where you have fallen. You remember where you were? You remember? Repent. That doesn't mean change your opinion. It means change the internal mechanism within you, all that you are. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, the invitation comes with a warning. It's not a condemnation. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, twice repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Good things, look, these are principles in coaching, in parenting, in marriage, in teaching from the platform, in leading a small group. Commend, hey, here's the things I see in you, and do that well. Don't use it as a hammer, as a tool. Don't use it that way, And then, but you, you're able. You have a platform. You've got a relationship. You've built some love. You've commended, but then you come and say, well, here's what I have against you. And we talked last week about love letters, about the love letters we used to write. This is a love letter. Re- Revelation says, blessed are those who read these words. This is a love letter from our Savior. And he's saying to us, hey, here's some commendable things, but here's where you've gotten lost. And they've gotten lost into legalism. 
So I want us today, and know it says this, it says to remember some English versions that you maybe have read from if you have an open Bible. It says consider, consider how, you know, consider where you were. Remember your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Remember that place when it was fresh and new and it was real and credible and substantive. Remember that place? Well, you're not there anymore. You know a lot more than you used to know. But you're not there with your first love anymore. Remember your first love. So I want to ask you the same thing. If you are a note taker, write the word consider down. And I want to ask you to consider a story this morning that I hope will support this idea of you not losing your first love, of you becoming a genuine follower of Christ. The world is crying out for that, by the way. I don't even know, I don't think the world needs more Christians. I don't think we need more churches necessarily. I think what we need are more disciples. I'm going to say it each week. We need more people who are apprentices, who are students, learners, who follow after Jesus. And by the way, I don't think the world's offended by Jesus followers as much as you think they are. I think the world is offended by people who don't follow Jesus, who say that they do. We're crying out for truth. We're longing for people that will be more genuine. And so the word consider, here's what I want us to do. I want us to back up. If if you have a Bible open, I want you to put your index finger or place marker, keep it there in Revelation 2. But let's turn back to a gospel, uh, Luke chapter 7, and it'll be on the screen as you know. And I want you, okay, to consider this story. If you haven't heard the story, if you're new to faith, hadn't been to church much, this story is going to be kind of weird for you. If you hadn't read it in a while, it's going to be kind of weird for you. If you're more of an intellectual, it's going to be kind of weird for you. If you're not a touchy-feely person, it's going to be really weird for you. But I'll throw in a masculine illustration somewhere along the way. So y'all stay with us, okay? Luke chapter 7, and here's the question. I'm about to read it. But uh, who are you in this story? So there's Simon, there's a prostitute, a sinful woman, and there's Jesus. All right, so which one are you? And let me give you a hint. You ain't Jesus. All right, Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus, who you are not, to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's how they did. They reclined then. Y'all don't recline during this sermon. If you're at home, do not recline. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, I've already translated that for you. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, and then kissed them and poured perfume on them. Mm. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. It's almost as if he read his mind. Tell me, teacher, he said, two people, this is Jesus, owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, remember, very knowledgeable guy, knew the Torah. I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, ding, ding, ding. Jesus said, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, by the way, don't miss that, he turned toward the woman And said to Simon, it was the no-look pass. He he turned to the woman, but he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And by the way, I think that woman, this is my guess, 
Y'all know I got a special sanctified imagination from, from the Lord above. But I bet you that's the first time this woman ever had somebody look at her like that. And this is pure. You see, this woman, I came into her house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Oh my gosh, is that true? Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Hold on a second. This is a visiting rabbi. Oh, wait. It's the promised Messiah. It's a teacher who transcends all teachers, who has the ability to forgive sins. Listen to me. I teach sometimes. I can't forgive your sins. I'm not Jesus. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Shalom. Go in peace. So in the midst of this weirdness of this story, let's break it down a little bit, and this will help. In the first century Jewish culture, um, there was customary greetings for honored house guests. And the customary greetings is really threefold in that time. I don't know about you today. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. We're better. We're a better church. We're a better faith community if we have more people with a genuine gift of hospitality to invite people in. And some of you with that gift, you have things that you do and it welcomes people. It's little added touches. Susan and I observed this. We're not trying to judge y'all, but when y'all have us over, we notice if there's little touches, things that you do, and sometimes we're, we feel really honored, and sometimes we're like, hey, that's just a nice touch that they gave us in welcoming us, but it was threefold back then. There was the kiss. There was the washing of the feet. You saw all these in the story, and there was the anointing of the head with oil, and the kiss was, it wasn't just like, boom. It was, if you were of equal rank, then it was common to kiss on the cheek. If you were of, if someone came to your house, it was a really honored guest of higher rank, uh, then you would typically bow and kiss them on the hand. There was the washing of the feet. That took place threefold. Uh, you could have your servants come and wash your honored guest's feet, or you could wash their feet yourselves. That would really show honor to them in a very personal way. Or you could just give them water towel in the basin and have them wash their own feet. But it was pretty much mandatory. Before you had a meal, you washed your feet. Everybody did that. And then the anointing of the oil. Y'all remember the 23rd Psalm? Thou anointest my head. With, I mean, this was just part of the culture. Olive oil, some other uh, elements to that. Maybe some essential oils for all you new age folks out there. You progressive types. Probably some new, some essential oils oils in there, right? We got your attention now. But there, there was oil. And so the anointing of the head with oil. And of all three greetings, Simon does none of them. And every scholar that you'll read from, if you study commentaries later on Luke 7, this part of the, this story, you'll see that uh, it's pretty much a consensus that this was not believed to be an accidental oversight. Jesus felt ignored and insulted. I always feel that way when I'm ignored. I always feel, and it's kind of, of course, ignored, insulted. It kind of goes together. And Jesus felt that way, but what a contrast in this. And so today, remember, we're asking the central question. We're asking, who are you 
in this story. I want to give you two points. I think you can have, I've been doing a lot of sevens and eights and fives and sixes. So this morning I have two in due time, but here, here, here's the first one. It's this. Think of it this way. And I want to, if, if you're a lawyer today, it's going to be a tough day for you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about in the legal sense. Okay. Love my lawyer friends. Y'all are smarter than me. We're a better church for you. Don't anybody leave. Don't anybody email me. We're talking about a religious sense. We're talking about legalism. We're talking about, uh, well, we'll talk about it. Lawyers talk. Here's the first point of two. Lawyers talk and lovers kiss. Lawyers talk and lovers kiss. You see, Simon, and by the way, lawyers, a corresponding point, lawyers are about intellect, not intimacy. You see, you can know a lot about God without knowing God. Simon was a boy who became a man. And in a patriarchal culture, the religion at the time, the Jewish religion, these boys at, from boyhood had to memorize lots and lots of the Torah. Not a little verse here and there. I don't know if you've memorized, you know, John 3, 16, 23rd Psalm, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. You know, if you've memorized any verse, just little parts of verses, right? Just little bitty verses. But these boys from five, there were benchmarks. There were rites of passages in their religion at five and 12 and 15 and 18, I think were the ages where they had to have certain things memorized. And I mean, it was a lot. Like you ever study the classics, you're like, oh, they knew all this, and they, you know, they memorized. Like it, it'll blow your mind how much they had to know. Simon knew a lot. He knew the prophecies. He just missed the Messiah. He knew a lot about God, but he didn't know God. Listen to me. You can know a lot about God, but not know God. Several years back, there was a, a television show. It didn't last long. I knew that it wouldn't. It was on ABC, and it was called uh, Biggest Fan, I think was the name of it. Um, I predicted it wouldn't last. I watched a few episodes and thought, eh, this is just short-lived. Uh, of course, I said that about The Bachelor and was so wrong. But uh, ABC's Biggest Fan, uh, look at this later if you will, but several years ago, a friend of mine uh, got on the show, and he uh, grew up in Madison, Canton region, and a long time ago when, that, when one of the Grisham novels was filmed up there, he met, uh, as I understand it, got to meet Matthew McConaughey, and that was kind of the spark for him as a younger guy, and he, it kind of weird to me, but he just became a huge Matthew McConaughey fan. A lot of you ladies are Matthew McConaughey fans. All right, all right, all right. So John Clark Packer, that's my friend, John Clark Packer, some of you remember him, he, he moved to Starville, but John Clark Packer just knows everything about Matthew McConaughey. I'm telling you, it's weird. Like, he knew his hometown, his high school, he knew his horoscope, he, know, he knew just all kind of things about him, just strange things about, about Matthew McConaughey. And so he applied when he found out about this new upcoming show on ABC. So he jumped in with thousands of other people and answered trivia questions about Matthew McConaughey. And he, uh, it worked out to where he knew uh, as much as anybody. And he was one of three people it was him and, and, and two gals, and they were invited to Los Angeles for a taping of a show. Who is Matthew McConaughey's biggest fan? Anybody remember this? And uh, John Pitts, was, he listened to the 930 from home, and he already texted me. John Pitts was with me. We were watching this, and John Clark Packer was a, a friend, and, and I was his pastor, and he was so proud of himself, and he was telling me about this, and I just thought, man, I need to pray for you. And then, uh, you know, I said, well, is there money involved? Like, if you win a lot of money, well, do we tithe to the church? So I began to really pray for him. But he, so, so there was a night where he was going to be on the show. And so y'all, y'all know how this works. They fly you out there and you're part of it. They announce a winner, like one of the three wins based on the trivia about Matthew McConaughey. And then the winner's announced, but you have to wait for the show and they sign a contract. And I remember talking to John Clark Packer. I'm like, dude, who, 
did you win? Did you win? Did you, did you win it? Did you win it? And he, he wouldn't tell me. He said, man, I, there's a legal binding contract. I could get in trouble. And I tried, I went, I went to a back alley and asked him if he could just whisper or write it down. And dude just refused to give his pastor any insight. And so one night in Madison at, at a clubhouse in a neighborhood, John Pitts and I went, we're friends with John Clark Packer. We went and met him and family and a bunch of people. The local ABC affiliate was there. And we, we had to watch the entire show to see if John Clark Packer knew more about Matthew McConaughey than anybody alive. And you know what? He didn't win. He finished in second to somebody else, but he knew a lot. It was amazing how much he knew. But I thought that night, and I'm telling you this now, all those people, they knew a lot about Matthew McConaughey. They knew so much about him. They just didn't know him. And you see, it's a difference between knowledge and intimacy. Let's put it this way. There's a little thought up there, a thought bomb I want to give to you. When there's intimacy, there should be growing knowledge. But too often, there's knowledge without a growing intimacy. Don't think for a second that I'm against knowledge. Don't think for a second I'm, I'm wanting to lower the bar and have, a, have you stay in some sort of uh, spiritual ignorance. Learn add. Uh, week two of the Disciple Series, week one was Second Peter 1. Like, add to your faith knowledge. Like, go get you some learning. But where, where there's intimacy, there should be growing knowledge. And this is so true, but too often there's knowledge without a growing intimacy. That's the letter. That's where this, these disciples got lost. They had intellect without the intimacy. They had knowledge without growing closer. You see, let me illustrate it this way. I, I know a lot about Susan. Y'all know I know a lot about Susan. I know what type of shampoo she uses. I know what kind of sushi she orders. I know what makes her laugh, and I know what makes her cry. Often it's the same thing, me. But I know a lot about her. I know a lot about her, but just because I know a lot about her doesn't mean that I really, really know her, and it doesn't mean necessarily that we're growing in intimacy. Come on. And so here, Jesus is saying, I want to draw you close. I want you to have a soulful experience. I I long for your worship. I don't want you to mistake me. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote here that I could drop on you. Some of you know it. Look, I'm, I'm not just a great teacher. I have, as nobody else has, the ability, the capacity, the sovereignty to forgive your sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's who he and he alone can be. And so don't miss that. Y'all remember the movie Hitch? Anybody? Okay, good. Some of you young people are nodding your head because it was was a few years back. Will Smith. And Will Smith is a a counselor. He's a coach. He's a life coach. he's He's a relationship coach to guys who don't really have a clue how to pursue a woman. None of y'all here today, but there's some guys out there, they just don't know how to pursue a woman. And so apparently there's a big market, and Will Smith, uh, he taught these guys how to pursue a woman. And one of his big clients was a guy named Albert. In real life, he's Kevin James, the star of King of Queens and uh, cinematic masterpiece Mall Cop. Y'all know Kevin James? So Kevin James is Albert, and there's a scene, it's the second, to me it's the second best scene in the movie, the, the dancing scene is, is, is the best scene, am I right? But it's the kissing scene, and so here's Will Smith, and Will Smith is teaching Kevin James or Albert in the movie, how to pursue a girl and how to kiss a girl. So when he likes her, he's got to communicate to her. And if he's communicating with her that he likes her, well, that's the time for the kiss. And so his advice, it was, I picture that uh, like a brownstone in Manhattan, they're out front there. And uh, Albert's very uncomfortable with the whole situation. 
And Will Smith has got swag. Y'all know Will Smith's never uncomfortable. So he's giving him the, the advice. And so he tells him, I wish I had keys, but he gives him advice. He says, and men, there may be something here. He says, when you're walking her to the door and if she's already got her key out and she's putting in the door, she's ready to say goodnight. Like keys ready, it's in the doors, you know, shoulders here. She, no kiss. Like she, she may be done with you. But if she's fumbling for her keys, then fellas, Albert, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lean into that, like lean into it. But here's what I want you to do. And so here's, this is going to be weird. But so here's, here's, here she is. So she's probably a little short. So I want you to, I want you to lean in. Like, you know, she hadn't opened the door and she's still looking for a key. So you, you go in and I want you to go 90. You go 90 and then let her go the last 10. As weird as it seems, I'm telling you today, Jesus is giving us this story to tell us how to kiss him. And it's an invitation to lean in. But let me be different with the math. It's not a 90-10. It's not a 50-50. You ready for this? It's 100. It's 100 because he's already gone to 100. He conquered death. He went to the grave. He rose again. He went a hundred for you. Paul to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price. There's no greater price. And some of you are waiting and waiting. I told you this is a little bit intimate for some of you, a little too weird. So let me go football for just a second because I'm going to lose some of you fellas. Let's say that uh, you're a linebacker. Linebacker plays defense. Defense opposes the offense. And a linebacker on defense, they don't know the play. The offense knows the play. They call the play. They're going to run the play. They have a little bit of an advantage. Defense gets tired a little more easily, they say, because they've got to anticipate. So a linebacker is a place on the field. A lot of times there's two of them or three of them in a 4-3. And then a linebacker has got to make a call. A linebacker is essentially got to guess what the offense is going to do because the offense is going to run the ball or they're going to pass the ball. And a linebacker needs to decide. He's kind of got to guess what they, they're going to do. There's a whole lot of film watching, a whole lot of signal calling, a whole lot of cheating possibly happening on that. But the linebacker has to make a guess, run or pass, really, really early. No waiting around. And he needs to do that right most of the ball game, And certainly on the key plays. You need to commit. You need to bow down. You need to say, you are Lord. You need to say, here's the call. You need to say, I'm all in. When I say lawyers are talkers, a lawyer comes to church and uh, don't want Lauren to hear this. She's not in the room, so don't tell her. But a, a lawyer comes to church and the worship song starts and a lawyer says, well, okay, let's just look around and see what's happening here. Let's see what's right about this. Let's see what's wrong. Let's see if they're wearing the right thing, singing the right thing. See if the volume, see if the decibel level, see the modulation of the reverberation of whatever, whatever. They're looking around and they're looking to see who's there and who's wearing what and on and on. Because a lawyer is a talker and a lawyer is a critiquer. And a lawyer can eat a preacher up. And a lawyer can go to lunch after the sermon and eat the preacher for lunch in criticism. But a lover is not a talker, but a kisser. And the difference there is the worship. And who is it about? And is your heart inclined to humble yourself for that? Lawyers are talkers. Lovers are kissers. Second point, I told you there were two. Second point is this. Lawyers point and lovers pour. 
are you good at pointing out people's faults? How many of you are pretty good at that? You probably should raise your hand, some of you, if you're sitting by somebody that knows that you are. It'd be good just to be honest about that. Like, I think we're all kind of good at pointing out other people's faults. Are you? Look, if you are trained and discipled by the media, you're really good at pointing out. That's, that's what's happening in the media. I'm old enough to remember when the news was just news. Like, I remember Walter Cronkite. And now it's like one side just, you know, it, they begin the broadcast and they're just pointing over here. Everything that's wrong in the extreme version, all right? Let me challenge your intellect. In the extreme version of what's wrong with the other side. And then you turn on that side and they're pointing over here about what's wrong, pointing what's wrong in the extreme version with the other side. And it's just a whole bunch of pointing. It's a whole lot of pointing. You know, I was just thinking as a Jesus follower, I have an opportunity like never before to live differently in this world. That's my choice and I need him to empower me. But how many of you are good at pointing? How many of you are good in your relationships at pointing things out? I shared with you last week that Susan and I just celebrated 24 years of marriage and counting. But early on, you know, it was, we had a honeymoon stage and it, you know, we were just learning each other. And I didn't appreciate Susan like I should have when we first got married. I'm just going to tell you. I mean, she's right there. I just didn't appreciate her. And one of the things I didn't appreciate about her is her ability, the gift she had really from God to help me with my driving. All right, so she just had this gift. She could see things I didn't see. And so she helped me. She pointed, she pointed things out when I was driving and I didn't appreciate it. In fact, I'll give you an example. One time she goes, she goes, isn't that the turning lane? And you know, you say something you shouldn't have. I was a rookie. And uh, she said, ain't that the turning lane? I said, ain't that the passenger seat? And um, later that night, she looked at me and said, ain't, ain't that the couch? Um, but you know, there's just something about us where we point and we just point and we see things in other people. John Weiss is a pastor in Kentucky, Lexington. He tells a story of one of his church members. We, pastors love it when you invite us to stuff. And a guy named Gene invited his pastor, John Weiss, to a ministry called Love in Action. And Love in Action in Kentucky is a ministry for men uh, with sexual addictions. For men who are seeking recovery, who are full of shame, powerlessness, and who want to get out of this, who are lacking intimacy, un- unable to be intimate with the one that they've committed to. And so that's what John Weiss, the pastor, was invited to. But he didn't know anything other than that. And he just sat there to support a guy who was doing ministry. Because ministry doesn't happen here. It happens a little bit here, but it happens there. The church, what did the church do this week? Well, what did you do this week? The church did what you did this week. Where'd you go? How'd you act? That's what the church did. So Gene leads love in action. And John, the pastor that I know of, was there. And a man stood up, the first man, he said, hey, you know, when I left work last week, one night last week, I drove by an adult nightclub. It's called a gentleman's club. I drove by this club, this nightclub, this gentleman's club, and, and John tells a story that, that, that a couple of folks, or more than a couple of folks of the men raised their hand. And his first thought was that, you know, why, are you, why do you have a question? It's not a good time to have a question. And the speaker didn't answer the question or address the question. And then he said, I, you know, I didn't just, just drive by. I, I stopped and, and I went in. And many more hands went up. Why, why the questions? Why isn't he addressing the question? He shouldn't. I mean, he's telling the story. Leave him alone. He said, I went in and I spent money and I left and I was so filled with shame at my inability to be a godly man and to do the right thing and to honor my wife and my daughters at home. And hands kept going up every time he got to a different 
link in the story, hands went up. And afterwards, Gene, the church member, explained to John, the pastor, for clarification. He goes, oh, no, no, they didn't have questions. You see, we're told, we're, we're taught that when you confess that no man should be alone. And so if you identify with anything in that man's story, you just raise your hand and you keep your hand up. I can't help but think for us to be a church of grace-filled disciples, of not talkers and pointers, but lovers and pourers, that we would not be finger pointers as much as we are hand raisers, and that we would identify with our fallenness with the humanity that's around us. Man's at home. He's a dad. He's got a couple of friends with him. They're watching a football game. The little boy's playing outside, and the little boy cries out he's stuck or something. The dad doesn't want to miss the game. He doesn't want to hang, not hang out with his friends. He can see his boy. So he just thinks, I can stay here and help my son. I'll just, uh, I'll encourage him. I don't want to miss the game. So he encourages him. He yells out to his son. The window's open, glass door. He says, hey, just uh, looks like you're stuck in the monkey bars. Just, uh, you know, you can do it. Try harder. Seems like the way dads parent, right? Try harder. You can do this. It's a, it's a good way to parent. Let them do it themselves. They'll learn more. Teach a fish, give a fish, you know the thing. He, he, he gives him encouragement. And then, then he, the boy's still stuck. His little boy's stuck in the monkey bars. He, he, he says, I'll, I'll offer him some encouragement. You know, he yells out, move to the left, slide to the right, dip, baby, dip. He's giving him some, some encouragement on how to, how to move to get out of the monkey bars. But it doesn't work. And then he's like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll condemn him. I'll condemn him out. I'll tell him, what, what, what in the world? Why'd you do that? Uh, boy, you're a, you shouldn't be stuck like that. Don't you know better? And then finally, the father gets up in my little parable here. Finally, the father gets up and he goes outside. He had given up on encouragement and instruction and condemnation. And he, he gets up off his comfortable, lazy boy and away from his friends. And he leaves and he goes out and he enters into that person, his son's pain and his predicament because he's stuck. And he, he releases him. He rescues him and carries him away. And here's the thing about this story back to Luke 7. You see, you and I, we have a God who removes us from our unsuckness, who saves us from the monkey bars of sin, if you will, not by encouraging us or instructing us or condemning us from a distance. And some of us are really confused about this. Let me, let me break down some confusion for you. Jesus said in John 3, 17, right after that verse about for God so loved the world, he said, I came in the world not to condemn the world. Is anybody unclear on that? I came in the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world from their sins. And we have a God who chose to leave his throne of glory and to enter into the space of us and our stuckness and to deliver you and I from our unstuckness. And to the extent that we know this, we appreciate this. And to that extent the realize, that we realize we are forgiven, then we become kissers and pourers and we become true worshipers. As a pastor, uh, I heard an amen. There should be more. I, I, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity through the years, many, many years of doing what I do, I've had the opportunity to stand with families in very tough, I mean really tough, heart-wrenching moments. And twice on each end, I've been with families who have been in the midst of a rescue or a recovery. And if there's law enforcement, you know what I'm talking about here. Recovery is there's a body and it's a dead body. And it's got to float up or be found. And I've been there with families. 
It's one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do. They want a pastor to speak to the family, to speak to God on their behalf, to speak to the media, to protect them from rumors. But I've been involved, one in particular, a rescue effort where there's a circle and there's prayer and there's shaking and trembling like nothing you've ever seen. And there's someone missing, someone that they love. And there's law enforcement. God bless law enforcement. There's uh, canines. God bless the dogs that can smell everything in the woods. And to go and to find in a rescue, you know, there's a rescue where they're found or found dead or they're found alive, but not well, or praise God, they're found alive and well. Well, maybe some emotional scars that a therapist will help clear up. But there was a situation years ago where I was with the family and it was rescue and it was found, found alive, found alive and well. And here's my point. Let me tell you, when you, someone's been missing that you love for hours and hours and hours, like half a day, over half a day, when, when they are found, there's no dignity in that group. Like if your family, there, let me say, there is no dignity. And in this case, it was a CEO with a whole bunch of shareholders. And let me tell you, that CEO did not care that he was shaking and trembling, needing auxiliary oxygen. He was a puddle of tears. He hugged, there was almost a death because of the hug. That guy had no dignity because someone had been found. But you take a CEO and put him in an altar on a Sunday where that CEO is crying out, Lord, I need you, I need you, I need you. You're gonna have some shareholders going, uh, we need a new CEO. Like we wanna be dignified here. But in this story, you gotta wrestle with it. In this story, Jesus is saying, I don't want talkers that critique. I want lovers that kiss and worship and celebrate. I don't want pointers who spend their time looking and condemning others, I want pourers who pour themselves out in worship to me. So, in closing, I want to talk to you briefly. Lauren, if you can hear me in the green room back there. Lauren and the team are going to come out, I think, and get set so there'll be a little bit of commotion. But I want to close just with uh, three analogies. And here's this idea, there they are. Here's this idea, kissing and pouring. When I hear this story, when I think of Revelation, when I think of a church that doctrinally was sound, that theologically was strong, that had the right answers on Bible trivia, but had lost their way because they had lost their first love, a church that needed to consider and remember. And can I tell you today, you need to consider and remember. Consider and remember who you are in the story of Luke 7. But when I think of kissing and pouring, I think of this word soul. I think of the integrated being that you and I are. And so very quickly, just think with me for a second, just for a second. Think with me for just a few, just on a few different planes here. One is you're having a conversation with somebody. Has this ever happened to you? Someone's talking, but it just seems like they don't really mean what they say. It's just words. In fact, it's letters. They're stringing together letters that form words that make up sentences that comprise paragraphs, but it's not coming from anything deep in themselves. You with me? So it's like they're parroting it back or they heard it from somebody, but it's not coming from within. And Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5 says, I love this, it says, deep are the purposes in a man's heart and a man of insight will draw him out. By the way, find, if you're going to get married to somebody, find somebody that can do that for you, that you can do that for. If you attach yourself in a deep friendship, find someone that'll draw it out because you're not as shallow and superficial as you think. There are deep purposes in your heart, draw it out. But when you're talking to someone and letters are forming words and words are making up sentences and sentences are comprising paragraphs, but there's no meaning behind it, that means there's no soul there. 
Or say by second example, by way of second example, you pull up to a strip mall. And that strip mall, you see the store you pull up to and it's bright and it's shiny and it's clean and it's new and it's branded. It's, the signage, the branding is so strong, but you think and then you say out loud, this place has no soul. You ever felt that way? This place has no soul. Now, someone had an idea and they developed a plan and they had a strategy and they did a feasibility study and a market survey and they, they consulted the data and they corralled statistics and they got together this plan and they, they analyzed the data and they bought land and built a place and they made sure there was parking and they had tenants come and take over it and they had great signs, but they didn't have soul. And maybe somebody didn't really ask, does the world need this place? Is this a good idea or is our heart in it? You see, because you could look at a place, it goes both ways, but you can look at a place and you can see brick and stucco and concrete and neon, but nobody put themselves in it. And you can go to places and you can see somebody put themselves in it. That's soul. Final, final example kind of personal I bet some of you can relate to this years ago I'm sitting in meetings trying to lead that church surrounded by voices of people with strong opinions about what I should be doing budgets in my mind budgets and programs and opinions and ceaseless comments about who I am and who I'm not and what I could do and what I should do and over and over again. And if any of you know that strong weight of people with strong opinions and many voices, it's a weight that you really aren't meant, no one is meant to bear. And in that moment, God did something in me and spoke to me and instructed me quietly That God didn't mean for me to be regimented, intimidated. He meant for me, he created me with a soul to explore and soar and not to be a cog in the wheel of someone else's machine and not to listen to other good intention voices, but to ultimately listen to his voice. And I was tired and I was gonna, I was gonna raise my voice and point my finger and say, I can't keep pouring myself out like this. I'm a big fan of hiding God's word in your heart. And Philippians 2, 17 was in my heart and it came to my mind. And it, it says, I poured out my life as a drink offering. But you know what's in that verse? You don't even have to go to the next verse. You know what's in that verse, Philippians 2, 17? I poured out my life. Because that doesn't sound fun. You want to do that? Pour out your life? And right there, it says rejoicing and shared joy. Y'all know how people-oriented I am. Shared joy. Rejoicing and shared joy. I have a Savior who walks with me. I've got good people around me who love me. God has given me a soul. And He is the voice I need to listen to. And let me tell you, when it ever becomes about the budget and the programs and the opinions and the ceaseless, endless comments of other people about what I should do to be successful, I'm off the rails, y'all. I've lost my way. I have lost my first love. But when he speaks deeply into my soul, 
man, it's a whole nother story. And I'm telling you, that'll light you up. And that's a different way to live. And here's the difference for me. Is my work, is my life a sense of duty or a source of delight? Let me pray for you. Would you stand as we do pray? Father, minister to us today as we close in song. Lord, help us to identify ourselves. The word says that we're a, the word is a mirror. We can see ourselves in these stories, but sometimes we can see ourselves in the mirror and go and leave and forget. And I pray that we wouldn't. Move us from talkers and pointers to lovers and kissers, people who know we're forgiven and worship you thusly. In 